You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open our Bibles to the Scripture reading, Jeremiah 38, 1-13. Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jehuchal, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, son of Malchiah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. He will escape with his life. He will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. Then the officials said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city as well as all the people by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Melchiah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. But Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, These men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take thirty men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn-out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, Put these old rags and worn-out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so, and they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. This morning we're continuing with the Gospel according to Mark, and we've come to Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, In the news recently, we heard about a high-ranking federal cabinet minister whose career was destroyed because it was revealed that his former girlfriend had connections to a Quebec biker gang. 
It was in the news again, actually, this past week. This was big news for weeks on end. It was a scandal in Canadian politics. It makes for great news stories because it attracts our attention. Like moths to a flame, people love bad news stories in which the muck gets drawn up and someone's reputation is destroyed. That's what scandal is all about. Moral outrage throws an obstacle in the way of someone's upward progress. Our English word scandal comes from Greek, and it's found throughout the New Testament. Many times it's used in connection with the gospel. The gospel is scandalous. People take offense at what the gospel says about them and about their sin. They stumble over it. Many times the the word scandal is also used in connection with the Lord Jesus. Not surprising since the scandalous gospel is about Him and it's what He preached. We find it also here in Mark at the end of verse 3 when we read that people were taking offense at Him. Literally, they were scandalized by Jesus. A scandal was created on that day. As he preached in his hometown of Nazareth, he was revealed as the prophet who gives offense, the scandalous prophet. That's our theme as I preach God's Word to you this morning. We'll consider him in connection with the people of his hometown, people of Nazareth, and we'll see their amazement at his nerve and his amazement at their unbelief. The healing of the young girl that concludes chapter 5, the daughter of Jairus, that took place in Capernaum, a town along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Now Jesus leaves there and he heads southwest towards his hometown of Nazareth. Of course, he was born in Bethlehem, but Nazareth was the place where he grew up and where he spent all of his youth and his early adult life. And as he goes, his disciples follow him, the twelve. And they will witness firsthand the most far-reaching hostility that Christ has encountered from the Jewish people in his ministry so far. And this will mentally prepare them for what they will encounter as Christ sends them out to preach later on in chapter 6. Well, the Sabbath comes and the Lord Jesus gathers for worship with God's people at the synagogue, much as we would gather for worship together on a Sunday morning. And as he's done on previous occasions, he stands up to teach. He ascended the synagogue pulpit. There was a pulpit in the synagogue, just like we have a pulpit in our church building. And he explained, he taught God's word. There are a couple of important things to see here. First of all, we find Christ working as a prophet here. That doesn't mean that he was like some kind of fortune teller predicting the future. Rather, a prophet simply taught God's Word with authority. In the Old Testament, sometimes that involved saying something about the future, but not always. In fact, much of the time, it simply meant being a teacher of God's will. A teacher who could say, thus says the Lord. The Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of all prophets that went before Him. He he fully revealed in His Word, 
His words, His works, and His person, God's plan for our salvation. And today, we too, we need to continue to sit at the feet of Jesus, our chief prophet and teacher, and have Him teach us through His Word. And second, though the cross seems to be a long ways off here in Mark 6, every time the Lord Jesus preached in a synagogue, He would be reminded of His date with death. Because you see, the synagogue pulpit faced towards Jerusalem, the city where He would be arrested, put on trial, and crucified. Not only was the pulpit oriented to Jerusalem, but also the synagogue doorway where you would go in and out. And as Jesus left the synagogue, he would be facing towards Jerusalem, the place where he would hit rock bottom and face the ultimate humiliation. The fact that he faces it and that he obediently goes along this path reminds us, brothers and sisters, reminds us that we have a Savior who loves us, who gave himself for us. Even as he stands behind the synagogue pulpit, we get a glimpse of the Gospel. And as he stands and teaches, we encounter what appears to be at first glance a familiar reaction. Throughout the first chapters of Mark, first five chapters, people are always amazed or astonished at Jesus. This is a typical reaction. So we're not too surprised to read that reaction in verse 2 as well. But then the wind gets knocked out of our sails because the amazement here is not a positive one. They wonder about where he received his ability to teach, his wisdom, and his power to do miracles. And as they were wondering about these things, they weren't sincerely trying to get an answer. You can see that from the fact that these questions, if you look carefully, they're not addressed to Jesus. These questions are not addressed to his disciples. They're just wondering among themselves. And their wondering displays a sort of prejudice. Prejudice. In other words, they've already prejudged. That's where the word prejudice comes from. They prejudged Jesus. And they prejudged him, first of all, based on his trade. He was a carpenter. That meant that he was the go-to person if something was broken. Besides working with wood and perhaps building houses and furniture, he was trained by his father to be a fix-it man. He was a practical person, hands-on. Not the, the sort of fellow who goes to university and who sits on a chair with a book open all day. He would have been technically skilled and he would have been physically strong. But you wouldn't expect religious wisdom from a carpenter. The Greeks and the Romans, they looked down on that kind of physical, manual labor that Jesus would have done for a living. And in the first centuries after Christ's ascension, after He went up into heaven, anti-Christian writers sometimes mocked Jesus. They made fun of Him for the fact that He had been a carpenter. And Christian writers were no better. Sometimes they responded by downplaying Jesus' trade or even arguing that, no, he, he wasn't really a carpenter. 
Being a carpenter was not an unclean trade. It wasn't like being a pig farmer, but it was certainly not viewed as being something respectable. You definitely wouldn't expect a great religious leader, you wouldn't expect a rabbi to have been a blue-collar worker with calloused hands. They prejudged him based not only on his trade, but also on his family. They said, isn't this Mary's son? Now, Joseph isn't mentioned here, probably because he was dead at this point, but possibly also because people weren't really sure whether Joseph was Jesus' father. In which case, this could be another knock against Jesus. He's the bastard child of a promiscuous woman in their minds. At any rate, everyone knew Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. His sisters, too, even though their names are not recorded by Mark. In other words, there's nothing special about Jesus' family background. He didn't come from a family of religious leaders. He didn't come from a priestly family. He didn't have a background where you would look at it and you would say, ah, yes, this is where a great religious leader would definitely come from. This was just a family of regular Joe Nazarenes. So, who does Jesus think he is to go up on the pulpit and tell us about God and his kingdom? What gives a carpenter the right to preach to us? We all know his family and what sort of people they are. They're just regular people like the rest of us. Nothing special about them. So what is Jesus thinking by coming to us and trying to act like he's Mr. Big Shot now? Their amazement is at his nerve to break out of his social bracket, to break out of his family bracket, and come to them in an unexpected way as a prophet, authoritatively bringing God's Word, saying, thus says the Lord. The result is that when he taught that day in Nazareth, people found him offensive, impossible to take seriously. There was a familiarity with him that bred disgust and an inability to hear what he had to say. Having grown up with Jesus only made it harder for them to actually accept him as a prophet. God's word pricks us here too. Many of us have grown up in Christian homes, gone to a Christian school. When we were younger, we sat on our father's lap as he read us Bible stories. Many of those Bible stories were about the Lord Jesus. The stories are familiar to us. Jesus is very well known. And as we listen to the preaching of God's Word, we may find ourselves thinking things like, well, I've heard all this before. I already know Him from the the Bible stories I heard when I was a kid. Tell me something I don't know. Like the Nazarenes, we too may have a familiarity with Jesus that breeds an inability to hear what He still has to say to us today. Let's call it what it is. Speak plainly. We may develop a veiled contempt for God's Word. 
for the Christ who's revealed there. Loved ones, the Bible exposes this contempt for what it really is. It's sin. To take offense at Jesus and His preaching, or the preaching of Him, because it's already familiar to us, to stumble over what we think is already well known to us, that's sin. To have lost our sense of awe at the Gospel and our Savior, that's iniquity. And when you see it in yourself, call it what it is. Name it. Confess it. And repent of it. Ask God's forgiveness for your contempt. And your Father promises to forgive you because His Son obediently had His eyes set on Golgotha, on Calvary. Because Jesus Christ did not treat God's Word the old, old story. He didn't treat it with contempt, but He loved it. And He cherished it. And He taught it and preached it. And most of all, He fulfilled it. He's your Savior. And we need His salvation here too. Embracing Christ, fixing our eyes on Him, means that we'll grow as devoted listeners to our chief prophet and teacher. And we'll say things like, well, I know where He got these things. Jesus is the Messiah sent by God. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh. This wisdom that's been given Him, that wisdom comes from on high. It's the wisdom that I need. Jesus Christ is my wisdom. And this power to do miracles that I read about here in Mark 6 and elsewhere, well, that too, that has come from on high. I see a picture there of the redemption that He came to bring me and all of God's people. Yes, He is Mary's Son. Yes, He was born of a woman, humbling Himself and taking on our human flesh. Yes, He's a true man and a brother not only of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, but my brother, my elder brother. He's a real human being, and he shares genetic material with his sisters. I take no offense at him, but I rejoice that he's my Savior. I'm thankful that he did all this for me and for others. He's my prophet, my teacher, and I want to always listen to him and, and learn from him to sit at his feet. Brothers and sisters, that would be a response of faith and belief to what we read here. But that's not the response that Jesus found in Nazareth. He turned to them and quoted a well-known saying that was often applied to philosophers in the Greek and Roman world. Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. Here the Lord Jesus comes right out and says that He is indeed a prophet. We read from Jeremiah, and in our reading, Jeremiah the prophet received a prophet's treatment. He proclaimed the truth about what would happen to the city of Jerusalem, that it would be overthrown. Rather than listening to Jeremiah and thinking about the way in which this disaster might be averted, the king and his officials they threw Jeremiah into prison 
and then made matters even worse for him by throwing him into a cistern, which was a, a big hole in the ground for holding water. And as you noted, there was no water in there. There was only mud. And as they let him down, he sunk down into the mud. This was typical of the way that the people of Israel and the people of Judah treated their prophets. And note that when he was pulled up out of that cistern, it wasn't by an Israelite, it was by a Cushite. It was by a Gentile. A Gentile showed concern, more concern for one of God's prophets. The more familiar the people of Israel were with their prophets, the more they heard from those prophets, the worse they treated them. The more they ignored them, the deeper they were sinking. The Lord Jesus fell right in line with the true prophets of old. His message and His person were offensive. He was not regarded as being worthy of any honor or respect in Nazareth. His family is mentioned here in this passage too. His brothers, his mother, his sisters. And we know from Mark 3 that his family didn't have the highest regard for him either. In fact, back in Mark 3, they thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. All around him, people are beginning to question his ministry. They're okay with him healing people. Yeah, we need more of that. That's what we really need. But as soon as he would begin teaching, as soon as he would open the Bible and expose what the Bible says, which was the focus of his ministry, then there was offense and scandal. It was the message of the gospel that continues, continued to be offensive after he ascended into heaven and the apostles went out to the ends of the earth. And it was offensive because of the cross. And we're going to consider that in more detail this afternoon. Let me just say for now that if Jesus Christ had not hung on a cross, He could have retained a little bit of respectability among Jews and Gentiles alike. There's a reason why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It says that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews. Literally, it says that Christ crucified is a scandal to Jews. It's the same word as in Mark 6, verse 3. They find Christ crucified to be offensive and scandalous. They were okay with a, a Messiah who was a virtual emergency room but a Messiah who was crucified was too much. His preaching about the kingdom of God, which would have foreshadowed His crucifixion, which would have contained the gospel message, was too much. Someone once said that in America, God is not worshipped, but used. It's true of Canada too, I think. With an eye to our text, we could adapt that. Christ is not listened to on His own terms, but used. And instead of an emergency room, today He's transformed into a life coach with principles for positive living. He's made over into someone who just wants to give you your best life now or help you become a better you. Loved ones, I plead with you, 
Don't fall for that. That message, that kind of Jesus plays well. It tickles ears. But it's not the Gospel. In fact, it's far removed from the Gospel. In the Gospel, a message is proclaimed which is still offensive today, which still causes scandal, which turns people off. Books that faithfully teach the biblical Gospel are never going to be bestsellers. Christ continues to be a prophet with a scandalous message. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have we have nothing by which we can save ourselves. We need Christ as He's revealed in the Bible. We need Christ and His perfect obedience and suffering. We need Christ crucified. We need Christ first and we need Christ last. We need Christ and Him alone. Recognizing this most central of all our needs, constantly looking to Him in faith, will give the honor to the prophet that he deserves. Believing the scandalous gospel message as often as we hear it, we'll want to make much of him and glorify him with everything in us and everything about us. Verse 5 tells us that he could not do any miracles there in Nazareth, although he did lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Well, why couldn't he do any miracles there? What prevented him? We have to keep going back to the central purpose of his three years of ministry on earth. In Mark 1.38, he told us what that central purpose was. He said that he had come to preach. Preaching was the main focus of his ministry. And the healings, the exorcisms, casting out of demons, the the miracles, they were designed to support that. They were pictures of what Christ had really come to do, namely to bring restoration and reconciliation between God and sinful humanity. If His preaching and teaching were not well received and people's ears were shut up to it, what's the point? of doing miracles in that place. There were exceptions, as we noted. And the exceptions were a show of His gracious compassion. Despite the response He met, He still showed mercy for the helpless. Here again, as we noted last week too, we see the compassionate side of our Savior. By rights, He could have done nothing. He could have just walked away. But yet... He did have mercy on some. And thereby, He demonstrated His grace. Our passage concludes with the Lord Jesus being amazed at the unbelief in Nazareth. Up to this point in Mark's Gospel, everyone has been amazed at Jesus. Some positively, some negatively, as we've just seen. But here, the tables are turned. And it's our Savior who is amazed. Amazed because of a lack of faith. And why would he be amazed at that? Well, consider the synagogue library. In those days, people didn't have personal copies of the Bible or of its individual books unless they were very wealthy. 
For most people, they would have parts of the Bible memorized and they would go to the synagogue where there would be biblical scrolls in the library. The synagogue library consisted of the books of the Old Testament. The people in Nazareth, through that synagogue library and through what they had memorized from it, had access to the riches of the promises made by God to His people in ages past. Promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and others. Every Sabbath, they could hear the Bible being read at the synagogue. They would have heard that God promised to crush the head of the serpent through the seed of the woman. But yet, when the fulfillment of all those promises contained in the Old Testament, when the fulfillment is there in their midst, when He's standing on their pulpit, before their very eyes, He's met with unbelief. And they're being scandalized by Him. It is amazing. Now the question this verse puts to us is this, would the Lord Jesus be amazed for the same reason at our church. We don't have to go to the church library to find a copy of the Bible. Our homes have numerous copies. We have multiple translations that we can use. Many of us have study Bibles with helpful notes. You can go on the Internet and you can find a variety of online Bible websites. In less than 10 seconds, you could look up every instance of a given word or phrase in the Bible. Many of us have a small collection of commentaries to help us understand the difficult passages. We are so much more richly blessed than the synagogue goers in Nazareth. But what happens with all these riches? Do we use these riches so that our faith grows so that also the fruit of our faith is receiving attention? Or would the Lord Jesus come to us and stand in amazement that though we are so rich, yet we are so poor? Here you can think of the question the Lord asked in Luke 18, verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Beloved brothers and sisters, please consider that question carefully. Consider carefully the picture of our Lord Jesus here in Mark 6, verse 6. It is a matter of eternal life and death. There is nothing, nothing more important than being certain that we are resting and trusting in Christ alone for our well-being here and now and for eternity. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, I implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God is again making His appeal to you through His Word. In conclusion, notice how the issue of identity comes up here again. If you remember, the Gospel of Mark wants to answer the question, who is Jesus? And in this text, we've seen some regard Him as the uneducated carpenter, the blue-collar worker, the hometown boy, the son of Mary. But a prophet? you got to be kidding. No way. 
And the way they regard him and his identity has everything to do with belief and unbelief. Chapter 5 of Mark is sometimes regarded as the chapter of belief. Especially that passage that we looked at last week as we saw people moving from fear to faith. And then chapter 6 is then regarded by some as being the chapter of unbelief. Shows us how Jesus responds to growing unbelief in His ministry. Now later in Mark 8 verse 28, a question comes from Jesus, but we can ask it now too. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Indeed, who do you say He is? Let us pray. Father in heaven, Your Word has again brought us good news. And for this, we are thankful. We adore You for the perfect obedience and the suffering of Christ our Savior. We confess Him to be the Christ, our only Savior, our chief prophet and teacher. Father, please help us with Your Spirit to be constantly looking to Him alone for our well-being. Help us to fix our eyes on Him and His work, on His work as the basis for our reconciliation with You. Lord God, we pray that none of us would have an evil heart of unbelief, but that we would all be joined in the same faith, never taking offense at our Savior, never being scandalized, by Him or by the Gospel. We pray in His name. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.